0: Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Preston.
1: And I'm still Jason.
0: <laughs> Jason, uh, kind of a interesting podcast interview today. I, I liked it because it was a little different than our normal, you know, ag science production topics. Although it definitely applies to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're right, Preston. I, I agree. I think this was a definitely something a little bit different for us. We haven't delved into the political arena from way back from about our third episode or something like that. We talked to the secretary of agriculture in Illinois. However, today we spoke with Dwayne Simpson, who's the vice president, head of North America Public Affairs, science and sustainability at Bayer Crop Science. And what what that means is he works with politicians to try to influence public policy in a way that is beneficial to everyone really.
0: Yeah, to the industry, to farmers in general, you know, I think this interview had a lot of value, especially for those farmers, you know, the farmers who want to figure out, hey, and maybe you want to have an impact on some of the decisions that are made at, from a, you know, regulatory standpoint or from a policy standpoint. And I think I think this is a good listen, and I think all farmers should probably listen to this episode to learn how they can help impact some of those changes.
1: Yeah, and and for sure, people should listen to the episode and and get it from Dwayne's mouth. He has a ton of advice in this episode. One really interesting thing that he mentioned was that when it comes to public policy, often one or two people can influence the entire policy by calling their representative, making their voice known. They might not hear from anybody else on that issue, and nobody else that's that's voting on that legislation may hear from them either. So there's a real opportunity out there. If, if there's something, if, you, if there's a change you'd like to see, or a vote go a certain way, make your voice known. Absolutely.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Dwayne. Welcome to the podcast, Dwayne. To kick things off here, could you tell us a little bit about your background, your work history, and what you're up to now? Sure, Preston. So,
2: Dwayne Simpson. Um, I joined Monsanto in 2008 on our government affairs team um, and have been with the company since then, doing government relations at the state level and at the uh, after the Bayer acquisition, moved to Washington D.C. and lead our North American team. Uh, today, my team has expanded. It includes public affairs. Um, it includes this, um, sustainability. It includes um, some science issues. So it's really about policy development. It's about direct engagement with agencies that deal with our, our issues. And it's about indirect engagement through our farmer customers and ag retailers with government around policy. And so the coalition building, those types of things. Um, I'm originally from Kansas. I uh, went to school in western Kansas out of Fort Hayes State, uh, worked on. A political campaign the year I graduated college, uh, went to Topeka and um, went to work in the state legislature. Spent eight years on staff for members of leadership in the legislature there. I was and learned uh, just about every issue you can imagine from corporate hog farming to anything you could think of. Went from there to after I got married and got a mortgage, decided that having a career that was required somebody else to win. A primary election, a general election, and a leadership election every two years. In order for me to meet that obligation, was probably unwise, and so um, found a job at a trade association, uh, leading leading their lobbying efforts. Um, it was the Kansas Grain and Feed Association, but we also worked with ag retailers. We worked with the biotech industry. We worked with the the uh, biofuels industry, and we worked with um, the pork industry. And so I worked with them for four years. I was. Uh, eventually their chief operating officer doing their state and federal lobbying and then managing all their programs and and, and those types of things. And then Monsanto called and, and I've I been, been with Monsanto and Bear ever since.
1: You mentioned a, a word there that sometimes can look like a dirty word to certain members of the public. I think the media gives it a bad name maybe, but you, you talked about lobbying and that's something that you've been involved in for quite a few years now. So can you talk a little bit about your experience as a lobbyist and kind of explain why is it important that there's someone in that role.
0: Sure. So, so lobbying
2: is a a term that, yeah, not just the media gives a bad name. Sometimes lobbyists give themselves a bad name, but in in its shortest form, lobbying is taking advantage of the constitutional guarantee for your right to redress government for your grievances. Um, That's not really what we do. We spend our time for the most part responding to government um, proposals or reaching out to government to to try to change policies that impact our company's ability to bring products to market um, to keep products on the market uh, those types of things or to you know help our customers when it comes to expanding or um, or building new markets and, and those things like that so if you think about biofuels and the renewable fuel standard or e15 year-round e15, or aviation fuel, those types of things. Those those are examples of expanding markets, international trade. Um, you know, and of course, we did a lot of work during COVID, uh, just keeping keeping the doors open. You know, making sure government didn't didn't stop the the um, the business from from being able to provide things to farmers. So, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of bad press comes from lobbyists, but but the reality is, it's really about. Building a relationship with policymakers that you know, a trusting relationship, and being information providers, and then really connecting, um, connecting people that live in their district, and, that are impacted by the things they're decide they're making decisions on, connecting them so that they can see real world consequences of what it is they're thinking about doing.
1: So I would imagine just the average politician in Washington, for instance, you know, some of them are from an ag background. If we if we use ag as an example. But a lot of them probably aren't, and a lot of them, they probably try to have staff members that help them understand some of these issues and things. But I imagine the the lobbyists really serve a purpose also in helping them think a little bit more holistically about an issue. Yeah,
2: when when you think about it, and this it's the same is true at the state level too. So state and federal, um, you know, 2% of the American population is involved in agriculture. I would suggest that elected officials, that number is probably a little lower than that. Uh, Some of them have some connection to agriculture. They're generation removed or two generations removed from the farm. But there are there are legislators that are serving in both in Congress and at the state level that, you know, they're five, six generations removed from the farm. And you know, for them to to really understand what's going on in agriculture, they'll have a staff person that has agriculture and environment and Two or three other topics that they're responsible for briefing the member on and those people will seek out experts in in each of those fields and so each each staff person's job is to is to learn um, you know to be able to brief their their boss on on all of the topics because every member of congress is responsible for every single thing that comes before congress. And nobody can be an expert on everything. Now, each each person they come from various backgrounds. You know, there are doctors that are in the Congress, and they they focus on the health committees. and And their colleagues that that see the world similar to them will rely on their colleagues. They'll rely on their staff, and then they'll rely on external experts. And they'll rely really probably most heavily on their friends and family and and people that they meet from their district that 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 are become experts in a certain area so if you're a member of congress and you're from st louis for example and you you know you happen to have an ag issue you'll talk to your missouri colleagues and you'll talk to you probably know four or five six people from your district that know a little bit about agriculture that you'll rely on pretty heavily and then the lobbyists of course supplement that
1: Duane, to bring it a little bit even closer to home, can you give an example of a way that private industry investment in lobbying benefits people, specifically farmers?
2: Yeah, I would, I, I would argue that I could probably spend the you know another hour telling <laughs> you all the different things we've worked on that 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 help farmers. But you know, I let me take a, a couple of minutes just to talk about what's going on at the state level around around the country right now. So, um it's more than 30 states last year introduced legislation that would restrict farmers' ability to use neonicotinoids. Um, a couple of those states wanted to ban it for ag uses, um, were not for the work of members of my team and others within the industry. Um, you would have seen states that that would have, would have banned seed treatments in the next couple of years that use neonic. Um, it's not based on science, it's not based on the you know the environmental impact that they have. It's based on a political view that we shouldn't use insecticides. And so you know that it's just one example, of defending the use of those products so that that farmers that use the products, what we really did is we connected them to the members of the legislatures. In their district and show them how they use them we we gave them you know if we had time we had them call in from a farm themselves saying look i'm planting right now here's the seeds here's the neonic seeded tree uh, treated seeds and you can see how where they're being planted they're in the ground you know they're it's the least disruptive way of, of protecting the seed those types of things that's just one example you know i mentioned biofuels earlier um, you know, everybody in the industry has been been um, pushing to make sure that we expand the use of biofuels. That when we look at low carbon fuel standards in states like California, that we don't forget that we have renewable fuels that have a have a very have about a forty percent improvement on you know carbon emissions over fossil fuels. That you know moving straight to electric vehicles isn't necessarily the both either both possible or or um, the most effective way to lower carbon emissions so that there's a help for society as, as well as farming. And then, then I go, I still go back to what our team did during COVID. So in the first few weeks of COVID, I mean, that month of March of 2020 of February, really, we started to seeing different restrictions come in. And everybody thought that it was going to be a week or 10 days of restrictions. And so when they talked about essential service, they were thinking police and fire and, um, you know, machines that you can't shut down, utilities, those types of things. And we went in and we, we called every jurisdiction that we had a facility in um, anywhere in the country. And we talked to the city, the county, the state, and we talked to USDA to make sure that our facilities were included in the, in the, uh, in the definitions of, of the facilities that could stay open and that our employees were, were essential employees that could continue to work. And had we not done that, we would have lost, We by the time we got to that summer, we wouldn't have had chemistry for farmers to, to, to spray in the field. We wouldn't have had seeds to deliver the following year because we wouldn't have been able to get out there and plant. We would have lost years and years worth of research from having to shut down our, our, our research. Um, both inside labs and farms and so you know that's that's an example that you know I can't put a dollar amount on it but but if if we had not gone to each of those different communities and and share with them the importance of keeping the keeping those industries moving keeping our industry moving you know we could have had a a real disaster and the supply chain's been bad enough as it is but I can't. I can't imagine what it would have been like had we not been able to to stand up and make those connections and and share share the value that that our organization and our teams were bringing, so that farmers would have something to plant in the spring and and products to to use over the top during during this the season and and the new products in that would, would continue to come.
0: That's a good point, Dwayne. I really didn't think about that, but I just had a flashback to COVID era where farmers were, you know, pouring milk out or, you know, the the hog or the the pork that went to waste because of the challenges. It's such an important industry. When I think about history, you know, 80 years ago, maybe 40% of the population was made up by farmers. And today that's such a diminished proportion of the overall. Um, nation. So it's cool that, you know, folks like you are representing the industry in in Washington. Um, So Dwayne, you've probably got, you know, your finger on the pulse of of, uh, Washington better than anyone else. So I guess, how would you describe the environment in Washington right now, you know, as it pertains to policymaking affecting agriculture? And do you have any predictions or anticipations following the November elections? Yeah, so I would say that trust is probably at an all-time low in, in Washington,
2: but it's not just Washington. I mean, it, the same is true across across the whole country and, frankly, internationally. Um, you know, there was a time when we trusted science. There was a time when we trusted um, universities, where we trusted corporations, when we trusted government to do what's in, in your best interest. You trusted the nightly news um, when you would see, you know, some... You know, Walter Cronkite sign off, You know people believed that that was the news and that was it. There wasn't the, the whole conversation about things like fake news. Um, I think that's the biggest issue that we face in Washington today is that nobody trusts anybody else here. And it, it's not nobody, but it's really hard. And um, because of that lack of trust, we have a very divided, deeply divided um, country. And the country itself is deeply divided and you see that in the politics. Um, as a result, we've got very narrow majorities. And we've had very narrow majorities for a very long time now. And narrow majorities don't do a very good job of um, building consensus. You, you would think it'd be something different. You would think that you, a narrow majority would move to the middle. But what happens is that that people spend that entire two years trying to retake the majority or defend the majority and so you you focus on issues that 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 resonate with your base and maybe make your your part of the, the political equation a little bigger. And um and because of that, you, you know, it's really hard to get consensus on big things. Um, you know, I, I would actually I'll give the Biden administration credit and the Congress. They've passed more big legislation than I would have pr- predicted. Um I'm not sure if it's all necessarily good for the economy. Um, you know we've expanded the we've expanded the money supply in the u s. over the last two years by thirty eight percent. when you do that, you, you, it eventually makes its way into higher prices. We're seeing that. We saw it in energy prices. We saw it in food prices. We see it in in uh, in rent and and you know housing prices and everything else.. Um, On top of that, with the supply chain issues that we have you're you're seeing all those costs come through the system. So, you know, I mean, Washington, I wouldn't say Washington's broken. I wouldn't say it's worse than it's ever been. Um, You know, that just ignores our history. We've we've had we've had, you know, vice presidents involved in duels before. We've had, uh, you know, one member beat another member with a cane on the floor of the House. And we've had you know, we fought a civil war, Um, but we're not there, Um, but it is not. It is not the world of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, even the 80s, when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could be could be friendly with one another. Um, that that world doesn't exist today either. And so, um, you know, we're we're past the point where we disagree with one another, um, and we're at the point where instead we uh, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking that the other person, that somebody who disagrees with you on a piece of policy, is your enemy is a treason, is treasonous or a traitor, uh, is a, a communist or socialist or a Nazi or something like that. And um, when when you do that, it, it's really hard to then later negotiate with them because uh, nobody negotiates with the Nazis or, or the communists, right? And so that that's the world we live in in the moment. And um, it's one where it's probably gonna take several election cycles to move past that. I don't have a strong prediction for November. And the reason is because we're still a couple months away. Um, I expect Republicans will take the House. Uh, I expect that the Senate is going to be a 51-49 Senate, but I'm not 100% sure which party is going to have 51. I think the Republicans have a narrow majority in the House too. And that just means that next year with the Farm Bill and some other important ag legislation, it's going to be even more important for us to be able to get members of both political parties that support agriculture to work together. Um, you know we work on that a lot in Washington and our DC office, we talk about the um, you know the purple caucus. Um, it's our own term. and those are the those are the folks that are in the middle that are willing to work with members on both sides of the aisle. Um, really, if you're doing anything really important, you need you need those members. Um, but they're not the ones that win primaries in the Republican or Democratic caucuses, and so many of the the, the um, congressional seats now are not competitive in November. And so, you know, you don't you don't get those people in the middle very often. People have to run hard to the right and to the left.
1: Duane, you talk quite a bit about the political parties, Congress, and the Senate, and how how things get done. But also, there's another piece in Washington that really affects people out here as far as regulation, and that would be the USDA, the EPA, organizations like that. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, those changes maybe when, when political parties switch hands or whatever, are the, are the changes as quick in those agencies and those federal agencies? And, and how quickly is policy affected? And can you just talk a little bit about that dynamic?
2: Sure. So I would say that generally speaking, the non-career staff, or the career staff, the non-political staff, at EPA tends to lean to the left and the career staff at USDA tends to be a little more um, to the right. And, and it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's really more a matter of um, the each group based on, on who, when you leave, you think about you leave, um, you leave college and you go for a job and and you think you want to go work for the government. There aren't a whole lot of um, conservatives who leave, leave college and say, you know, I want to go work at the EPA so that I can defend, you know, agriculture and businesses um, from, from um, overregulation. Um You do have a lot of people who are, are farm related, farm backgrounds, and they tend to be more conservative. They go work at USDA and um, that persists no matter which administration is in office. So when Donald Trump was in office, um, despite the political leadership being very different at EPA, the the staff you know the, it's the same exact staff people that we were working with under the Trump Trump administration. USDA is the same same story, just a slightly different different angle. Um, and I'm going to surprise people on the podcast here because I would say one of the probably the biggest challenges that we're, we're dealing with right now with EPA is that they don't have enough resources. Um, so here I am I'm a lobbyist for for one of the largest, um, pesticide companies in the world, and and I go spend time on Capitol Hill and talking to you know and, and with grower groups and others, saying we need to increase the funding for EPA so they can hire more staff, and we need to um, we need to do that and we're and we're going to pay more fees in order to make it happen. Um, that's that's probably the single biggest problem that we have as at, at EPA today is that we're having significant delays because they don't have the staff to do all the work that they're required to do in order to make it through and to make a decision and then make it one that survives litigation. Because that's the third part of the, the equation that um, that is probably the the one that's the wild card is that so many people can file a litigation against decisions from agencies. And, and we have to not only get a product approved, but we have to do it in a way that that can survive, you know, whatever the Whatever the next court's going to say, and so that that's that's probably the hardest part.
1: There's so many things that are kind of counterintuitive, and that that's one of them. I would, but you're right. I would never expected you to say that we need more staffing at EPA, but that totally makes sense because there there has to be people there that are able to uh, when you when you're working on a new label that that are able to follow up on that and do all the approvals that need to get done. So that makes total sense, but not something I would have expected. Let me give you an example. So
2: the um, The Endangered Species Act was passed 50 years ago. 30 years ago, a court for the first time ruled that EPA, when it was doing pesticide registrations, had to do consultation with with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Services and the Marine Services as part of Endangered Species. They couldn't do it on their own. They had to follow the Endangered Species Act like every other part of government does. Um, Since that time, less than 5% of pesticides have made it all the way through the consultation process. The EPA at its current path, its current, current rate would take about 1,400 years to put all the pesticides through the process. Um, you know, 1,400 years ago, I think the Romans were still in charge. Um, now, 1,400 years from now, EPA may Still exists. That's the nature of government bureaucracy. But, but you know, I don't. I don't think that we're going to be able to survive that long before we we get them approved. Uh, in 2007, the Congress um, mandated EPA to take the 700 most used active ingredients through the process by October 1st of 2022. That's two weeks from now. They um, recently told a court in a glyphosate case that they thought that they could get those 700 plus active ingredients through the process by the year 2040. Um, that's, that's a, it's a resource limitation. That's if they'd taken and redirected a significant amount of the resources away from approving new labels and approving new uses for products and, and doing all those things so that we can bring the next generation of products to market. Um, the EPA has put together a work plan to, to manage the Endangered Species Act and do those registrations that they're behind on. And they estimate that they need 900 more employees in the Office of Pesticide Policy. Today, they have less than 500. You know, the Congress is not going to triple the size of that office. Um, but we do need to increase the funding there. I think we're gonna probably get another 20 some million, probably the largest funding increase in the current budget in the history of the EPA, and then when we pass the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act, it, it gets done every five years. It's prea five it is up for renewal next year. When we pass that, it's going to push for even more funding. But without it, you know we're we're not going to we're not going to be able to get new products to market, let alone you know be able to keep products on the
0: market if, if when they're when they run into the courts. And so that's that's really the issue. Out of curiosity, how do they determine which molecules get reviewed first? Is it so prevalence in the there, market? Yeah.
2: So some of some of it is um, where they're at in the process, right? So every every active ingredient that's already been approved goes through a process called re-registration every, every fifteen years. So that that piece is required to happen every fifteen years. Of course, if you're bringing a new AI to market, then you have to. Um, then that one have to go through the process now immediately. So they're starting with the new ones first. Um, a- after that, after the new ones, then it, then it goes to new uses. Um, they they have a whole a hierarchy of what they're how they go through them. Um, but then it's ones that have been litigated, and so a, a lot of the cases so far have been litigated and settled. And when they settle, they take some products off the market, and then they they make a commitment to do other products by a date a date certain. Um, with glyphosate, um, you know, there was a challenge, we just went through the um, the interim decision for the re-registration. So it was everything about the re-registration of glyphosate, the 15 year period, um, you know, was, was completed except for the endangered species part. Uh, an NGO filed a lawsuit against that, challenged it. And the court said, you can't do that. You can't do an interim decision. You have to you have to do the, the Endangered Species Act first and gave them until October first to get it done. They went back to the court and said, We think we can get um, glyphosate done in the next four years. And the court, can you give us more time? And the court denied that. Um, now they haven't passed the deadline yet, so there, there may be an opportunity to do something more with it. But but that's just an example of once we get past that deadline, the court is going to have an opinion on what happens next. And you know they'll probably order um, order the EPA to, to meet certain you know deadlines and and because of that glyphosate's going to be at the front of the queue and it's going to have to be in front of those other 700 because it has a court order to do so um you know pending you know with with you know whatever consequences may may come with that
0: court order should they not comply so, a lot of the farmers we talk to, you know, they're obviously freedom to operate is the number one concern. You mentioned glyphosate a little bit. Is there any more detail you can provide or context around what comes next for glyphosate? So, glyphosate has a
2: lot of things going on with it right now. Um, you know, there's there's the ongoing litigation around, around the cancer cases, uh, there's the re registration that I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, including endangered species. Um, and then there's obviously the, the product registrations that are coming um, due for for each individual product. So the re-registration is the molecule, but each product also has it to be renewed on a regular schedule, and those are those are going to come due here uh, in the next several months. And, and you know that's like a PowerMax or a Weather Max, et cetera. Um, and then of course you have you know things that are going on in states you know, into in various states where they're also trying to pass political restrictions, communities that are doing that um, and limiting use around schools and those types of places, um, and then international issues as well. So places like Mexico, uh, you know, is banning the importation of, of glyphosate. It's impacting renewals of, of new bio, of biotech crops that they have stacked with it around a ready trade. So there's a, there's a whole host of issues around glyphosate. I'll start with the litigation. Um, Right now, the litigation is is really focused on, um, you know, there are two parts of the litigation. The first one is, can you sue um, Monsanto or Bayer for a failure to warn warn that Glyphosate could cause cancer? And and that that argument is based on the idea that EPA is, as part of its assessment, determined that Glyphosate does not cause cancer and that you're not allowed to put something on the label that is not approved by the EPA. And the EPA at one point even told registrants that they cannot put a cancer warning on the label. And so that therefore you can't be sued in a state if you are um, for putting for failure to put that on the label. Um, that was our position in litigation. We had some mixed verdicts through the courts. Eventually the appeals courts have all tended to agree that um, that with the EPA actually silent on whether or not you put it on the label um, but even though they say it doesn't cause cancer, that it, that the courts have come to the conclusion that that's not, in fact, preempted from from the state action. Um, losing that piece of the case drive puts you to the second part of the case where you you are. Hey, did, does glyphosate cause cancer? Does it cause this cancer? Uh, we lost those first three cases, and we've won the next five. Um, you know, our our legal team has settled some hundred thousand cases, and they're you know they're working through. Um, through the cases, you know, obviously, uh, the more cases we win, uh, the better that is from a settlement perspective. So that's that's the litigation piece. Um, you know, there's less and less litigation um, over the, over the last, you know, several months. We haven't seen seen as many new cases coming. When you move to to the issues of registration, you know, that's really the a, a matter of you know, the EPA is continues to to say you know to defend. The use of glyphosate is a safe product to, be, to, you know, you follow the label, it's a safe product. Um, we don't anticipate that when it, the new labels come out that they're going to have significant new restrictions. We, we should expect uh, with every new product that comes through the EPA that you're going to see some at least minimal buffer zones um, for application. Every product that goes through the process is going to see this for endangered species. Um, but other than that, I don't anticipate you're going to see um, you know, significant change with with glyphosate use for farmers. Um, at the state and local level, I think that you're going to continue to see erosion of consumers' ability to use glyphosate, but, you know, we've already announced that we're going to leave that market, um, you know, once we get new products approved. So, so there's, um, you know, that, that transition is going to happen, whether the government does it or the companies do. Um, and then in the international world, you know that one's that one's probably a little more complicated. There, you know, there are multiple places around the world that have considered glyphosate um, restrictions or bans, or that are have a, a re-registration in the books. Um, that's that's coming, and you know we do the same thing there that we do in the U.S. Uh, the the only concern there is that you want to make sure that if you lose a market, if if some market doesn't renew the use of glyphosate, that that is an impact. You know an export market for the u s. and imports u s. goods that residues of use um, in the u s. aren't aren't impacted. And you know and this this goes to a lot of other things too. If you think about from a societal standpoint, agriculture is one of the handful of industries that can actually reduce carbon in the atmosphere. Um, one of the ways that we do that is through no-till farming you You really have a hard time doing no-till farming and row crops without the use of glyphosate. And so you know glyphosate is really central to a number of governments around the world's plans on how they're going to meet their carbon commitments and and in order to to for agriculture to do its part on climate change, it's going to need to keep having that tool available. And that's one of one of the messages that USDA has been taking around the world to other countries, especially to Europe, uh, that look, if you want us to be able to, to help you meet meet these uh, these global targets, these Paris targets, um, you know, we need to use all the technology, including tools like glyphosate.
1: Well, Dwayne, that's a that topic of glyphosate is one that is kind of a continual frustration to me when I look at it. I mean, here here's a product that's probably one of the safer chemicals that that has ever been. Created and most effective in in what it does, and you mentioned how it has potential to reduce emissions. It does reduce, not just potential; it's it's happening as as we speak. But clearly, it got in the crosshairs of some NGOs and some other groups. Is there a cautionary tale there? Is there something that we can learn from this experience that in the future maybe we can better protect a product like Roundup?
2: Yeah, Jason, it, it's a it's a great question. It's one that we have obviously looked at and thought about a lot. I would say that yes and no. I would say that yes, it is definitely a cautionary tale, but there's no other product in the world like glyphosate. Um, you know, glyphosate is um, you know the most used molecule around the world, right? It's the most valuable ag chemistry in the world for all the reasons we mentioned. It, it's it's every company in this industry has tried and tried and tried to invent something that is more effective less costly and with a better tox and safety profile than glyphosate and they've all failed for 40 years um and the, and that's not it's not for lack of trying um Bayer itself has committed over half a billion euros in in you know weed management research to try to find a solution to you know countries that don't want to have glyphosate you know on the farm it's it's definitely a cautionary tale because of all of the different things that happened and, and how we got to where we are, and we could we could spend hours and hours and hours going through it. I think the lesson, the real lesson to learn from that, is that early on, I don't think Monsanto took threats to glyphosate or even GMOs from consumer opinion seriously. I think that there was a a belief that look, we our farmers understand the value of these products and they will they will purchase them. We don't need to defend them in the public and Failure to defend them in the public meant that when people made claims about our products that that they were believed, um, whether or not they were debunked by a scientist or anything else, you know social media, when it, the rise of social media really impacted impacted what people think about our products. We've learned that lesson. We've learned that you can't just rely on your customers. To know how important a product is, how safe a product is, based on the regulatory filings and data, that that public perception matters too, and and so we we make sure that we uh, we focus on transparency. That's probably something that that we could have done a much better job a decade ago as a company, um, but you know we lead we lead the industry in being transparent and sharing our data and so showing how we not only that we've come to certain conclusions from a scientific standpoint but how we got there and what you know what do what do critics say and and how do we answer our critics and really that's that's probably the answer is to try to you know i mentioned earlier that there's a lack of trust in public policy i think the answer to to building trust back is transparency that's one of the one of the pillars of how you build trust is is openness and um letting people see See that? Look, here's what the science says. Here's 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 what we've studied. Here's what you know what critics say. Here's how we answer it, and and understand that everything has trade-offs. You know, I mean, there's no perfect anything. Um, every every product in the market that's being used for anything has a trade-off. And if, if you want to take glyphosate off the market, you know, we'll find another weed, way to kill weeds. But there are going to be trade-offs, and and those trade-offs include you know maybe a, a, a worse toxic toxicity profile or they include you know having to use multiple chemistries in order to kill the same weed, or they include significantly lower yields so that you know you have to end up clear cutting land in order to to grow enough food to feed feed the population and it includes you know releasing carbon in the atmosphere that's a lot of trade-offs for one product but you know there's trade-offs for every product out there and that that's really probably the biggest lesson is that look it's not that we can't use a product or defend a product that you just have to make sure that the public understands what all the trade-offs are from from making those decisions. And, and then the public's going to make a decision and you know, and we'll, we'll learn to live with it one way or the other.
0: Nicely said, Dwayne. Another question for you though. So when you consider the future of agriculture, I guess, from a government affairs perspective, what excites you most? And then along with that, are you still net positive, net optimistic, when you do make those considerations,
2: yeah. So it, it's interesting because a lot of times when I talk talk to people or I give a presentation, um, I, I get the I get a lot of feedback that I mean, you, you got a real negative outlook on the world, which is which is funny to me because I, I actually I'm, I'm very I'm a very positive person. I I believe that you know that our best days are ahead of us. I'm, I'm excited about where agriculture is going. I think that the future of Products like um, short stature corn, you know, smart the smart corn system using using data um, and what that can do. Um, you know, the the future of gene edited crops. I mean, I I really believe that the future of of agriculture is going to change dramatically in the next decade, and it's going to take a significant amount of work. Um, by our company, by the industry, by farmers, um, by everybody involved in the public policy process to make sure that those innovations are available for farmers to use. Um, and that's that's really what gets me up every day is, is the idea that, that, hey, we've got some really cool things coming. Um, you know, we've got to defend the products that we have in the market today so that farmers can continue to produce today. But the products that are coming and what's, what's next and around the corner, are, are really exciting. And, and when we, to get there, in some cases, you know, policies are going to have to change. Um, and in some cases, it's just a matter of making sure the policies don't get any worse. And so those, that's really where I spend my time on that, that, you know, why do why I get up every day what I spend time with my team on is, you know, where, where can we make the biggest difference? And how do we make sure that all of that that money that we spend in research and development—you know—we're we're the single largest company when it comes to R and D in agriculture. That when we do bring these new products to market, can we can we do so in a way that that isn't um, that the government it does its proper regulatory function, but it doesn't unnecessarily slow down products from getting to the getting to our customers.
1: Well, Duane, we usually start to wrap up when we ask about your perspective on the future, but we do have a couple more topics. I think that, you know, we we have you here. I'd like to take advantage of your kind of, you kind of get your finger on the pulse of what's going on in Washington. And so there's a couple things that have been going on recently. We're sitting here in September of 2022 when we record. And recently Congress has passed the Inflation Reduction Act. I I probably could have some debate about the naming of that and and what it's actually going to do, but maybe you can give us a... uh, A little preview of how do you think that'll affect farmers?
2: Well, Jason, I I I don't think it's going to reduce inflation. Um I and and candidly, neither does Congress. (laughs) Um they it it is literally the build back better bill, um only smaller, and with a new title. Um there's you know 30 billion dollars put into USDA. Uh, a lot of that money today is going into conservation programs and towards grants and other things that will be focused around around sustainability and climate change, um, both from a resilience standpoint and from uh, you know carbon sequestration and other other types of um, opportunities. The farm bill, though, is a year away, and when the farm bill comes. That money is in the base now, right? And so when you have new money in the base, that means it can be spent a lot of different ways. Um, I would expect that Congress is going to really direct how USDA spends most of that money that that USDA just received. and And I expect that farmers are going to to start seeing like, look, look, there's a consensus in Washington that that agriculture can be a very big player in climate change. And there's a consensus that mandating agriculture to do things in climate change is, is a political loser, um, and so the the answer to that is is to set up a system of of incentives that that both incentivize companies to build you know the measuring and reporting um, verification systems that are necessary, and encourage farmers to adopt the pol- the the ag um, you know, practices that will actually, you know, make a difference when it comes, when it comes to those sustainability issues. So I really think that's the focus. Um, you know, when you spend that much more money, again, I mentioned a 38% increase in the money supply. It's going to drive uh, inflation. You're going to, you're going to continue to see, um, you know, commodities are priced in dollars. So there's, you know, whether it's in energy or whether it's in, um, you know, Commodity crops and those types of things, you're going to continue to see a, a little bit of a floor created by inflation. I think that's going to last for that's going to persist for a while, uh, depending on how how hard the uh, how much money the Fed takes out of the the money supply. They they obviously have an impact on on reducing that, um, and I, and I think you're going to see that continue to go around the world too because other countries are doing the same thing. They're putting a significant amount of money into um, into climate change type um, act- activities, and in, in doing so, um, they're they're increasing the cost of energy by trying to convert away from fossil fuels towards renewables that cost more. Uh, they're subsidizing those costs. Uh, at the same time, when you take products off the market, you know capital off the market that has already been built and has still got useful life, um, it reduces the supply of energy, and when you reduce the supply of energy, you increase the cost of it. Um, you know, it's, it's basic economics, and when they do that, it's going to drive up the cost of energy, which drives up the cost of fertilizer, which drives up the cost of diesel fuel, you know, all of those things um, that are going to continue to impact
0: farmers, I think, for at least the short term and probably the medium term. So. Speaking of farmer impact, and I guess to kind of close the interview here, we really appreciate the time. I wish we could go for a couple hours, you know, but uh, for the farmers listening, you know, a lot of these farmers feel like they don't necessarily have a voice when it comes to policy or regulation. Any recommendations for for the farmers on the phone who maybe want to take an active, more of an active role when it comes to regulation and policy? Well, Preston, this is this is my, my favorite part of my job. So, um, you know, I
2: spend probably... I'd say 85% of the efforts of my team are actually indirect um, policy, you know, policy influence versus direct, and and the reason for that is because while we may be you know have expertise on on individual policies and what they do to our company, the reality is is that that I don't get a vote for all 435 members of the House or 100 senators or 50 governors, et cetera. Um, but farmers, they do. They get a vote. You know, there's there's farmers in every just about every congressional district. Not all of them. They're definitely in every Senate seat. They're definitely in every governor's race. And every you know, some states actually elect their ag commissioner. And those votes matter. Now, when I worked on this, the legislature and the staff in the legislature, I I can't tell you the number of times I would see a bill go from failure passage to failure based on a single phone call of a single constituent um you know like guns issues and abortion issues you know those those you would get postcards from thousands and thousands of people and emails and and all and phone calls etc but your typical piece of legislation that goes through the congress or goes through a state legislature nobody not, not a single constituent reaches out to, to talk to to their elected officials but when one member would come onto the floor and say i talked to a farmer back home about this bill and let me tell you what it's going to do to his farm the the entire legislature would change and it's it's a power that no lobbyist has it's a power that only exists from from that trust trusted relationship that people have um, with their farmers in their district and and you you really have a, a unique ability to to get to know your your members of congress they all do they all do eggs and issues type uh, events at local chambers of commerce they they all show up at county and state fairs they all go um you know they, they're all accessible if you have come to washington and you want to meet with them or or even make phone calls to them and I, i'm telling you that, that that's the single most important thing you can do is get to know the people who who are elected to represent you because when you reach out to them your voice is significantly stronger than mine is, and and that that's really important the other thing i would recommend is to join a trade association for your you know the crops that you grow um join the farm bureau join the corn growers or the soybean growers or the cotton growers or whoever whoever it is that you are that you 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 know mostly identify with because they have people just like me that spend every day going up on Capitol Hill and they know what's going on. And it's impossible for you, for you as a constituent to know everything your member of Congress is doing and to track it and know when's the right time to call. Um, but if you're members of those organizations, they will tell you, they'll say, hey, this decision is about to be made. And you know your member of Congress needs to hear from you. And when they do that, pick up the phone and make a call and you'll really be able to make a huge difference in the, in the way um, public policy is, is made that really does truly shape the the everyday um, business on the farm for, for each and every one of you.
1: Dwayne, that's really interesting, especially to think about how one person can really make a big impact. Uh, we've really appreciate your time here today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, if there's something that listeners have heard here today that they want to learn a little bit more about, learn about how to get more involved. Is there a way, what do you recommend? Is there a way to reach out to your team? Is there someone else that makes sense to reach out to a, a website or something like that where people can learn a little bit more? Jason, that's a,
2: that's a great question. I, I wish I I'd, I'd thought a little more ahead of time on that. You know, we don't, I, I don't think we have an externally facing, um, you know, page that that talks about the issues that we deal with. I would say, again, if you focus on those trade associations um, you know, they really do, you know, the the ag groups, the farmer commodity organizations, they do a really good job and you should be members there. Um, you know, Jason Preston, I don't know if you guys put in show notes or whatever. I mean, I I'm always willing to take a phone call or you know, give somebody advice. We we've we've done that with customers multiple times over the years. If somebody has a question, you know, me or my team, you know, I'm happy to happy to to see what we can do to help. Um, but I would seriously encourage people to become members of, of their their local organizations, because that, that's really where you're going to be able to make the most amount of difference.
1: Sounds great. Yeah. And we, and we can definitely put some information in the show notes. So thanks a lot for your time here, Tony.
2: Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you both. I, I, I appreciate it. And it's, it's always fun to, to, to talk shop with, with, with the team.
1: The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.